0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together.
1: Well, he is risen. Happy Resurrection Day to all of you. Thank, Thank you for joining us online as we worship together uh, this morning. I hope you are all staying safe and sane. And yes, I mean safe and sane. uh, Because staying sane, I think right now, is almost as as important as staying safe. I know that this virus and the quarantine are hitting us in all kinds of different ways. It hit me in a funny way this past week. I I was noticing as I was watching a couple of movies on TV that um, all I could think about as I was watching the movie was how the people in the movie weren't maintaining social distancing the way that they should have. And of course, that movie was filmed like two or three years before this whole thing. And then, but every, and, and it was all I could do that every time I saw uh, like a scene in a public restaurant or something like that, my first reaction was just to freak out about how close they were to one another. And so it, it took me a second to realize how much this has really impacted me. And I think in some funny ways, it hits us in different ways. So again, I hope you are staying safe, but also that you're staying sane in the midst of this. Uh, you know, it's only been a month. We're moving through this together um, and hopefully um, we'll be able to see the end of it soon. But as we start this morning, so uh, I know that there are many of you who are joining us this morning, or this is your first time with us, and so let me introduce myself. My name is Jay Georgevich. I get to be the lead pastor here at North Bible Church, and I got to admit to you this morning that as we start into this message, I have an agenda. I have an agenda this morning with this message, and here it is. Um, I am going to try to convince you that despite what you are facing right now, and we are all facing a lot and dealing with a lot, that the best is yet to come. I'm also going to try to convince you this morning that where today you might feel tired and weary and maybe even hopeless, that this could be the most hopeful day that you've experienced in a long time. And I know that's a lot to live up to, and I'm kind of setting the bar high this morning, but that's how much I believe in what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. So let's get started. I want to start today with a story. Several years ago, I was uh, serving at a church in the Phoenix area where I was pastor there, and a woman who had just started recently attending our church came to me with an idea. She wanted to have a fundraiser for a child that she had recently adopted. It was a little boy who had special needs, and she came to me and asked me if I'd be able to participate in this, what the church could be able to do. And as a pastor, you tend to get lots of requests like these, and so at first, I didn't really know who she was, I didn't know where she was coming from, and so I was a little bit resistant. But I'm glad that I listened to her, and as I listened to the story, she began to tell me that her son, whom they had recently adopted, was in need of a specially trained dog. As you see, this little boy suffered from all kinds of seizures every single day, hundreds of seizures in some cases that he would have on a daily basis. Now most of these seizures were small, and they didn't really affect him that much, but every once in a while, he would have a very serious seizure that if he didn't get medication right away, could cause permanent brain damage or even might threaten his life. And so as a result, her and her husband were staying up all hours of the day and all hours of the night, keeping watch over him to make sure that when he had one of those large seizures, that he could get his medication that he needed in a timely fashion. Now, she told me, though, that they had these dogs that were specially trained that could actually smell the chemical reaction in the child's brain before the seizure happened so that they could alert her and her husband in case one of those large seizures happened, and then they could get him the medication. As you can imagine, that would allow them to sleep. It would allow them to do a whole bunch of other things. The only problem was it cost at least about $15,000 to have one of these specially trained dogs. So her idea was to do a fundraiser so that we might raise this amount of money for him. At first, I was thinking to myself, that's a lot of money, and we're a small church, and I don't know if we can actually do that. Well, she sensed my hesitation, and she just invited me, come over and just meet my son. Would you come over to our house this week? So I agreed. A couple of days later, I came over to their house, and I'll never forget the first time that I saw her son. He was lying on the living room floor, but there was something a little bit strange. As I looked a little closer, I realized that he wasn't lying on the living room floor like a normal, like, like normally someone would lie on the living room floor. There were limbs kind of twisted and going in different directions, and as she saw the kind of confusion on my face, she began to explain to me. She said, look, the brain, he, he has brain damage, and the brain damage is what causes his seizures, but it doesn't only cause his seizures. It actually causes everything from how his, motor, for how his uh, limbs and have developed to his muscles and how his motor skills and his coordination has come along. It affects his strength development. It, is, it affects even his speech. And she began to explain, We adopted him because we typically foster children, and we came across his profile, and he was essentially on the non-adoptable list. And so my husband and I were really moved, and we fought to adopt him, and now here he is. And then continuing, and as if she read my mind, she said, Look, he was born to a drug addict, and the police found him as a baby locked in a closet during a drug bust. And they didn't know how he'd been in there for days, had not been fed, had not been given any water, and he was so malnourished that the police were surprised that he was even alive. On top of that, it was obvious that the drug abuse of his mother had severely impaired his brain development. So the combination of the drug use and the neglect had left him at that point in a near vegetative state. And then she said, but he's doing much better now. As I looked at this child who was about six years old at the time, with twisted limbs and unable to speak or move his head, it was hard to imagine how it could be much worse. But then she began to talk to him, and she said to him, and she introduced the two of us, and then she said to him, say hi and use his first name. He loves that. He loves to meet new people. And so I said hi and used his first name, and for the first time I saw movement, He he turned his head to make eye contact with me, and he smiled. And I looked at her and I said, I'm sold. We'll do whatever we need to do. (laughs) Now, the story ends with a bit of a happy ending. We were able to do that fundraiser and raise enough money to purchase that dog for that family. And it changed their lives in the way that they loved their their son. But i got to tell you, that's not the point of the story. It's not why I tell you the story this morning. Here's the thing. I told you earlier that when the mother first approached me, I was really scared about whether or not we would be able to meet the the amount of money that was needed to purchase this dog. And I think in that moment, I was really afraid about the number, $15,000, a lot of money. We're a small church. I had all these excuses for why we couldn't do it. But I got to tell you that once I went into the home, I was even more scared for a different reason. I walked into a situation that was so unexpected, and I had no idea what to do. I remember when I first saw her adopt his son, I hate to admit this, but I was so scared and uncomfortable because I was looking at a situation where this young child was wearing every amount of abuse that he had experienced in his life, from drug abuse to physical abuse, and it was there on his body. You could tangibly see it. And I remember being overcome by so much helplessness because I looked at a situation and realized that there was nothing I could do to make this better. There was nothing I could do to fix it. And I got to say that often we find ourselves in those kind of situations, maybe not as extreme, but we find ourselves often in situations where we see that something is wrong and we also feel our sense of helplessness in knowing that we can't fix it on our own. Many times we have trouble with moments that are so full of grief and brokenness, we often just have to look away because it's all that we can do to handle it. Or we distract ourselves or try to entertain ourselves or just to get our minds off of it. We've seen this firsthand in the way that we've reacted to the coronavirus. I think distractions have been the most popular way for us to face the coronavirus for a lot of us. We watch a lot of Netflix, we make memes, we do whatever it takes to get us through this season. And so when I think about how we typically approach things and then I look at how Jesus approaches things in scripture, it amazes me all the more when we see Jesus in the Bible. Because Jesus never looked away from pain or brokenness. Instead, he entered into that pain and looked right into the face of evil and death. He spoke to prostitutes. He healed the blind and the lame. He ministered to lepers. He cast out demons from people. He confronted evil and injustice wherever it was. In fact, what we celebrate today with Easter Sunday is that Jesus stared down all of that, including death, and he didn't look away. He entered right into it for all of us and defeated it once and for all. Now, I'm guessing that this isn't the first time that you have heard that what we celebrate at Easter is that Jesus rose from the dead. You probably know that. This is an astounding thing in and of itself, if you think about it, right, to say that a man rose from the dead, because I'm going to venture to say that none of us have actually seen anybody rise from the dead before. So there's quite a amount of faith involved in just believing that this actually happened in history. And even though we have a historical proven accounts that we can see of Jesus' resurrection, it still takes some faith to believe that it could happen because we didn't actually see it happen with our own eyes. And perhaps the more important question this morning, though, is what difference does it make to you and I that Jesus rose from the dead? In other words, how does the resurrection impact your life today? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. To do that, we're going to take a look at a place in the Bible that has been one of the most studied and examined chapters about what the resurrection means in all of Scripture. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 15. Now, to give you a little bit of background into this book, this book was originally written as a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of of Corinth. Corinth was an ancient city in the Roman Empire. It was a significant city, but it was also a very interesting city. It was a port city that basically connected the western part of the Roman Empire, which stretched all the way to modern-day Spain, to the eastern part of the Roman Empire, which is basically stretched all the way to like the modern-day Middle East, all the way up towards Asia. And so this port city was hugely important to the empire, but as you can imagine, it was a hugely diverse place as well, where people of all different backgrounds and cultures and even languages would meet to trade and to do business. It was generally a wealthy city, but because it was a large city, it certainly had its own socioeconomic classes. In other words, there were a lot of rich people, but there were also a lot of poor people in the city. And so it had all the features of a large city. There was diversity of culture and religions and thoughts. It was really a melting melting pot of ideas and beliefs. It also had the vices of a large city, most notably crime and prostitution. It was a city that was actually notorious throughout the Roman Empire for its promiscuity. And to, to compare it to kind of modern cities, it would be kind of like a little bit of New York City and a little bit of Los Angeles and a little bit of Las Vegas all rolled into one. Now, a church had grown out of that environment in the early first century. And in that city, this church had kind of blossomed from people who grew up in that city for the most part. And so as you can imagine, it was a bit of a struggle for these new Christians to reconcile their faith with the way that their culture had taught them to live, which the way, with the way that they had been brought up to live in a lot of ways. And as you read through this letter of 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians, which was also written to this church, you can see all kinds of topics that Paul has to address with them there, because there was a lot to address. There were a lot of issues they were struggling with. But in this chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing those in the church who had either um, been challenged or those who were challenging, even within the church, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. And really, their objection was simple resurrection is not possible. In their experience, they had never seen anyone rise from the dead, and according to the beliefs that they grew up with, it was thought to be impossible. Their objections were not only based upon their own experience, but also on trying to get their minds around what, what and how that would happen. I mean, how does a person come back from the dead? How does it even work? They would maintain it's not possible. So as we read from this chapter in a few minutes, Paul first has to address whether resurrection is possible, which we're going to see in a few minutes, but he also has to explain why resurrection is so essential to the Christian faith and the redemption plan of God. Specifically, what's God's purpose behind the resurrection, and what did Jesus actually accomplish by rising from the dead? Because apparently there were some of those who were saying, yeah, I can believe in Jesus, I can believe he was a good teacher and a rabbi, I can even believe he went to the cross, but I can't believe in this whole resurrection thing. But as the Bible tells us, resurrection is the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. If it didn't happen, we might as well forget this whole thing called Christianity. But if it did happen, it is everything. So if you've ever wondered what the resurrection of Jesus is really all about and what it means, why we celebrate it today, we're going to take a look at that this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to start in verse 35. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up and read along with me. Uh, if you have, a, if you have a, maybe um, a smartphone or an iPad, a tablet, that kind of thing, you can look it up on A Bible app, or even look it up online, BibleGateway.com is a good place to go uh, to read along with us. But I'm going to be reading from the ESV translation this morning. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory." Now let's stop there for for a moment. Paul begins by addressing this general objection that had come to surface in the Corinthian church, which is essentially in the form of a rhetorical question. Like, how does a resurrection even happen? I mean, do you know how ridiculous that is, to claim that someone could rise from the dead? No one has ever seen anything like that. I mean, after all, what does a resurrection body look like anyway? Who has seen that? We don't have pictures of it. We don't have scientifically tested resurrection bodies to see its molecular makeup. It's something of a fairy tale. And this is why Paul refers, re- responds excuse me, by saying, you foolish person. It's not just because he's trying to be mean. He recognizes that this is a rhetorical question that's designed to create doubt. But he begins his reply here. He still addresses it with a couple of analogies. And the first thing he says is that it's like comparable to a seed that you plant into the ground. Just as you look at the seed, and the seed doesn't look like much, before you put it in the ground, once you put it in the ground, it dies or it decomposes, and it becomes a beautiful plant that then bears fruit, or becomes a tree, or becomes some kind of plant with flowers, whatever it may be. Well, the point is that just by looking at that seed, you could never imagine what that plant would look like just by looking at the seed. Paul says the same thing is... For our bodies, we look at our bodies almost like a seed. We can't imagine what it might look like for our bodies to be full of life and full of beauty the way that a resurrection body is supposed to look and the way that it will look. So we might not be able to fully imagine what it might look like just by looking at our current bodies, but we see this example all over creation, and he continues then with the next section. And he says, look, the other question is, how in the world could God do this? And Paul says, look, look at all the other bodies In the world, there are animal bodies, there are fish bodies, there are bird bodies, there are even heavenly bodies, stars and planets. He said God created all of these things just by breathing them out. And you can see the way that Paul uh, relates it here. It might remind us of Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, and he's doing that on purpose because he wants us to see that, look, the same God who created all of these species, in fact, many species that we haven't even discovered yet even today today, is the same God who can breathe out what a resurrection body might look like. God's not limited in that. But without spending too much time on what the resurrection body actually looks like, that's not technically Paul's point here. He gets to the next point, or the bigger point, in these next few verses. At this point, he's just been answering, is it possible, and what might it look like? But in verse 42, he gets to the point. Verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So, and what is really the point of all these analogies in this part of the chapter to explain the how and the why of the resurrection is this. We are given resurrection bodies because our current bodies do not fit what will come. Using the phrase natural bodies, Paul says that, look, our natural bodies are the ones that we have here in this earth, which are the ones that are made for this world. Just like this world, they're full of imperfections, they're subject to diseases and viruses, they have their moments where they can be amazing and do amazing things, but that time is temporary, usually in our 20s or so, because after the 20s, things just go downhill from there. That's my own commentary. But, but they are not meant to last forever. And just like this world is not meant to last forever, that is the natural body. So what do we do then when our body runs out? Well, some would say that's it. There's nothing left. It's over. But as Paul says, the resurrection means that God has provided a permanent solution to that temporary body, that body that gets old, that body that gets tired and sick. And there is a body that is meant to last forever, the resurrection or the spiritual body, as Paul calls it here. And here's the kicker to all of this, that if this resurrection body lasts forever, then there must be a place for that body to live forever. And this is the new creation, an eternal physical world for an eternal physical body. And that's encouraging to me, I don't know about you, but I like having a body. Not because my body's anything special. I would like to be a little bit taller. I could stand to lose a little bit more weight, especially during the quarantine time right now. Um, I'd like to have a little less gray hair. And it'd be nice to, like, not pull a hamstring every time I try to run or jump. But the reality is, is that it's great to have a body. God gave us bodies as a blessing, and he wants to save them and heal them as a blessing as well. And Jesus' resurrection promises, although we have spiritual death from sin, and that same sin causes us to experience physical death, that Jesus has saved us from both. So then check out the end of this. Verse 50, skip down to verse 50 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, we just read one of the most joyful passages in the Bible. It comes right here from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I don't mean that because it's terribly happy in tone, because it's not overly happy in tone. But if you take a look at what's actually happening here, this is the most, one of the most joyful passages in all of Scripture. Borrowing a phrase from the Old Testament, in particular from Hosea, which we looked at a few weeks ago, this passage addresses death. In this amazing way, I mean death, which is something that all of us face and yet rarely any of us want to talk about because we fear it so much, here is addressed with joy. I mean, who addresses death like this anyway? By name, almost as if it were a person or a personal enemy. For most of us, we approach death with so much trepidation and fear that we kind of refer to it as just something that's out there, that's that's something else. And And it's like the ultimate cosmic elephant in the room. And if we don't speak to it, we won't have to think about it. And yet this passage calls out the elephant, that big, mean, undefeated enemy elephant, and not only calls it for a conversation, but for confrontation, and even has the audacity to taunt death, declaring victory over it. Now, back when I used to be able to play basketball, we would say, if you're going to talk trash like that, you better be ready to back it up. I almost called this sermon, How to Talk Trash to Death?, Um, but my better instincts got a hold of me, and instead I called it the victory we need. Not as catchy, but I think certainly just as meaningful. And here's why. Look, we don't need little victories. We don't need little hopes. They are nice to get us by from time to time, but little victories mean nothing if we lose in the end. And every belief system and every religion must account for death or it's not worth anything. I mean, don't tell me how I can manage my life or feel better about myself or even be a better parent, as important as that may be. Don't tell me how to be a better version of me. Don't tell me how to live my best life now. Tell me what you're going to do about the biggest problem I'm going to face in this world, by separation from God and my own mortality. If you don't have a solution for that, I don't need it because that's the victory that I need. And the second part of this passage tells us then how to get the victory that we need. Notice how the tense switches here from a present tense to a future tense. When all of this happens is kind of how this goes. Paul then, there's a subtle and important change that Paul introduces here, and we have to realize that these are some of the things that we have not seen happen yet. Paul talks about it here. This is God's word that's a promise to us. Jesus talked about it in his earthly ministry when he said that he would come back to establish his eternal kingdom on this earth. We also have Jesus' words in Revelation, the last book of the Bible where He says, "I will make all things new in the new Earth." However, we haven't seen these things happen yet, so what does that mean? How do we receive it? Well, it means that the last part is calling us for faith is calling, is calling us to have faith. Or as the Bible describes faith, believing in what we cannot see or we haven't seen yet. And as much as I believe that science and the Bible are very compatible when you really examine them side by side, there are things in the Bible that cannot be scientifically explained, either because they are miraculous occurrences or they are things that have not happened yet, and we can't measure them. The resurrection of our bodies and the new earth are a couple of those things. Because look, I can't present to you up here on this stage someone who has a resurrection body, but I believe it in faith even though I can't see it. Ultimately, that is where we all have to arrive, a place of faith. And that's not just trust in an idea that's presented in a book, but that is trust in the personal word and the personal promises of a God who loves us and who has given us his son to bring us back to him and to give us a hope and a future that is more than just wishful thinking and sentimental floating in clouds, but he has took on our sin and the mess of it all and he has made a place for us to live with him in a world that is not less than what we have now, but is actually the fulfillment of this life that we have always wanted it to be. Look, this virus has been called many times an invisible enemy. We're at a place right now where, where a virus we cannot see can invade our bodies and can even kill us without us even seeing it. There are some who are living right now in constant fear That they might already be infected with the coronavirus and might have already, and and, and with them being infected without a, a vaccine, they're at the mercy of how this virus might take over their body. And I'm not trying to be melodramatic or alarmist here when I say this, but if you think about all that we have put into, all the money and energy that we put into things that we think are gonna provide security and a healthy long life I mean, healthcare and police and fire departments and defense and general security on a worldwide level, all these things are important, but think about how much time effort and money we put into those things and it's an invisible organism that has shut down the world and at this point we can't defeat it the best we can do is hide from it look we all know that this is not how life is supposed to be we can distract ourselves and try to make the best of it and we need to do both of those things at times to stay sane in the midst of a crisis that no when no one knows it's going when no one knows when it's gonna end but no matter who you are and what you believe you can't look at this and say this is fine right? It's not, it's not. And, and I think we have to say that it's not good enough for, hope, for us to just hope that things might go back to normal someday. All of which brings to mind one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. He said this, if we find in this world desires that cannot be met, we can only assume that we were made for another world. The Bible says something similar in that God, God has put eternity into our hearts, So at those times where we're honest, we know that we were made for another world. We're reminded of this constantly if we just pay attention. Every time we complain about the world we live in, every time we shake our head at the injustices, every time we weep over loss, every time we feel brokenness in our own hearts, when we suffer from physical or mental illness, every relationship that experiences strain and brokenness reminds us that we are not home yet. It reminds us that we were made for another world. And it's time to stop placing our hopes in the things that were not made to bear ultimate hopes for us. The effect of this virus is exposing how fragile placing our hope in this world really is. Financial markets have tanked, taking away the security of our money and our plan to retire early or retire comfortably to bring heaven on earth during our retirement. The virus has fractured community as now people are looking at each other more like potential virus carriers than actual human beings. This virus has taken our health from us and it threatens, in some cases, to take our lives. But most of all, it has taken from us a sense of security because we don't know when it'll end or maybe when the next pandemic might hit. And I think for those who are Christians and believe believe in the resurrection and the new creation coming, this experience should shake us. It It should shake our attachment to this world. It should shake our undue confidence in the world to provide what we actually need. Instead, we should consider the fact that we should not just be here toiling around and giving our hopes to this world, but that we are both physical and spiritual beings, and we were made for glory. We were made for a world where physical and spiritual are redeemed and healed and brought together for eternity. The resurrection of Jesus is that promise we need. The first fruits, the guarantee that that day will come. And we should do everything we can to live life right now to the fullest and how we love and how we enjoy the life that God has given us and how we give thanks for how he blesses us. But we always need to remember that we are merely passing through this world on our way home. Our lives in this world are a mist or a whisper on the way to eternity. And to hold our lives with clenched fists is like trying to grab a hold of the mist that's in the air. And in a funny way, I think this virus acts a lot like sin. We can't see it, but its effects are everywhere and we can't contain it. It spreads brokenness and separation and death everywhere it goes. It destroys everything we love and we can't fix it on our own. We are in need of a vaccine for the virus just like we are in need of a solution for our sin. When we needed a solution though, Jesus didn't look away. He stared right into the brokenness of it. He stepped right into the brokenness of it and he overcomes it, he saves it, he redeems it. The resurrection gives us that victory that we have always wanted and needed. As 1 Corinthians said, God has given us the victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ. And my hope today is that the challenge, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that the challenge would be to begin to see things that we thought mattered so much would now fade into the background so that we can see what really matters today and for eternity. I told you at the beginning of this message that I had an agenda. I said I wanted to convince you that no matter where you were, what you are facing, the best is yet to come. And although you might feel weary or even hopeless this morning, that today could be one of the most hope-filled days that you've had in a long time. That's a little grandiose, I know. But notice one thing I didn't say. I didn't say I can give you hope because only Jesus can do that. And I didn't say that I could give you the faith to receive that hope. Again, that's between you and God. So with that in mind, I want to close with one question. What does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean to you? What difference does it make in your life? Does it change anything? Does it impact how you see yourself, how you see the world, how you see God? I'm going to invite the band to join me back up here on stage. And I just want to ask you to do one thing in response this morning. I'm a firm believer that when we read God's word and we hear God's word that We should do something in response to kind of nail our response down in faith. And so this is what I want to ask you to do this morning. Grab your cell phone, if you have a smartphone with you, or even if you have a cell phone just with texting capabilities, and open up up the texting app on your phone. And what I want you to do is, through text, answer that question. What does the death and resurrection of Jesus mean to you? And you can send that text to whoever you would like to send it to this morning. Maybe you don't want to send it to anybody. Maybe you just want to send it to yourself. That's fine. Send it to yourself as the reminder. But during our response time, do that. Send it to friends, family, whoever it may be. What does the death and resurrection of Jesus mean to you? Maybe it's a word. Maybe it's a phrase for you. Maybe it's an entire paragraph. Whatever it may be, compose that text. Nail it down. Use it to encourage somebody else. Use it as a confession of your faith in the resurrection of Jesus and what it means. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank thank you you that this this morning we get to celebrate hope and life. When everyone around us and everything in the media and just everything we're facing reminds us of the frailty of life. Lord, sometimes it's what we need. We need to be reminded that this place is temporary, that we are truly passing through it on the way home. But how glorious and wonderful that home is going to be. Because, Lord Jesus, you have risen from the dead to give us unbridled, unbound hope this morning. And I pray that for wherever, wherever we are this morning, whatever we are feeling, whatever we're dealing with, that we would be confident in the fact that you know it, Lord Jesus, you do not turn away from it, you see it. And just as we read from here, Lord, you do not fear in confronting it even to the point of death. And you have overcome on our behalf. And so we have hope, we have life, we celebrate that today. And may we respond with people who have courage and a renewed sense of faith because of what you have done for us. The resurrection has happened. He is risen. It is true. It has changed lives. It has changed eternity. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for your wonderful gift by your love to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. Happy Easter to you and your family. So a couple of things I want to remind us of as we get into next week, we are starting into a new series called Crucial Questions, and one of the cool things about this, this sermon series is it's going to take us through the summer, but this is a time where we are focusing on answering all the questions that you might have about Christianity, about the Bible, about culture, about how we view things and how we live as Christians in this world. And so if you are somebody who has had a question about Christianity, that you've been looking for an opportunity to ask that question, you can go onto our website, onto our Crucial Questions page, and you can submit your questions there. Now here's the, here's the thing, on that page, you can remain completely anonymous if you want You don't have to submit your name or your email address. Just submit your questions, and then we're going to pull all those things together with our preaching team. And throughout the summer, we're going to explore those questions and respond to them throughout our sermons in in the summer. So hopefully, if you've joined us for the first time this morning and you've got questions about what Christianity is all about and maybe have an opportunity to you've heard things from other people about what Christians believe, but you're not really sure what we believe ourselves, this is a great opportunity to explore that through this series. And so we'd invite you to join us again next week online at 10 a.m., at northbible.com. One last thing I want to remind you of, just like everybody else, small businesses and nonprofits, of course, churches are struggling through this time financially. And so if you would like to give, there is a button for you to be able to give through our app, or you can go on our website to give online. And so we'd invite you to do that. But again, happy Easter. He is risen, just as we saying, he is alive. And so enjoy with your family, the hope that we have through Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.